0: A chance to feel like heroes too. We'll and we lose, we we'll go, yeah. we'll go Welcome to Holy Cow, a Cubs Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Holland. Our guest today is Moisha Walensky, who is a writer on Cubs Insider. Uh, I've written a couple articles with him recently where uh, we debate a baseball topic, go back and forth. Uh, they're pretty good. You can find them on Cubs Insider if you want to read them. Um, Moisha normally talks about more of the financial aspects of baseball and the Cubs in general. So I ask him a lot about, you know, this budget restriction that the Cubs seem to be under. And he gives me some interesting ideas about maybe some of the reasons why the Cubs aren't spending money. So it's pretty interesting. Um, and then we spend a lot of the podcast talking about uh, Ken Burns from PBS is doing a new version of his baseball documentary for the last ten years. So we talk about what topics um, Ken Burns should talk about, and of course, spoiler alert, a lot of it's about the Cubs winning the World Series. Um, so here is Moisha. Right, welcome to Holy Cow, Moisha. Uh. A lot of interesting stuff going on with the Cubs, um, a lot of it with the budgetary concerns uh, with, you know, free agency this year. And I thought since you know a little bit about finances and stuff, I'd ask you, what is going on with this restricted budget? Is it a front office strategy or is it the ownership just doesn't have the money? So
1: uh, I'm going to uh, limit my answer just because I could easily talk for two hours on this subject. Um, but more and more, I'm becoming convinced that what happened is when Theo Epstein signed Yu uh, Darvish last season, he basically did so knowing that he was giving away any shot at Bryce Harper or Manny Machado this offseason. I didn't believe that at the beginning of the offseason, I thought that the financial numbers uh, allowed for the Cubs to make a move on one of those guys this offseason, even after uh, the Darvish signing last offseason. But I'm becoming convinced, at least based on the uh, interview today that was given by, um, uh, team, I guess, uh, team owner Tom Ricketts, that uh, that is the case.
0: So you don't think it was one of those things where, like, Epstein signed – Darvish, thinking he had budget for next, this season, and then at the last minute, the budget was taken away. You think he fully knew that signing Darvish was going to limit this year?
1: Based on what I'm starting to hear in the last few days, yes. Uh, Obviously, we will never know the full truth. And I have to say, if what I think right now is true, I have to say it represents a serious lack of foresight and – decision-making process on the Cubs part because I think that um, and, I've, and I've written this with you in a couple of our discussions basically that uh, Harper and Machado are generational stars who are 26 years old and you Darvish is a far more fungible commodity.
0: Yeah, and it's one of those things too where you know, even some of these other moves like picking up the option on Cole Hamels or even the deals for like a Brian Dunsing and acquiring Brandon Kinsler. Now looking back, if they knew that there are these budget restrictions, these moves make even less sense now than they would have before.
1: Well, yes and no. A few of
0: those moves made
1: genuine sense at the time. Uh, picking up Brandon Kinsler, they genuinely thought Kinsler was a quality arm who was worth five million dollars in twenty nine in twenty nineteen. Uh, When they picked him up, they had no reason to believe that he was just going to drop off a cliff the way he did. Uh, Signing Brian Dunsing, they thought they were getting a decent value signing from a guy who had solved it and really pitched well for them. So they thought they were getting a good reliever on a reasonable two-year deal. Um, So a lot of those deals were not so much that they were screwing up financially as they just had players did not perform up to their contracts
0: yeah so this upcoming season obviously the strategy is going to be more of a um you know internal improvements we're going to hope these guys get better and you know there are a lot of cheap deals that they have signed right now so if you get good production out of that it will still be uh worth something but do you think they should have gone beyond the budget they've set for themselves or is that unfair to ask them to do that
1: Well, that's a really complicated question, but I will say it in this context. The Cubs are about to launch their own network, which is going to, for the indefinite future, tie their financial well-being to the quality of their on-field product. They no longer are going to have guaranteed revenue streams from a third party year after year, no matter whether the team is good or bad. Now, I think that's a fantastic development. But I can understand that the front office is sitting there saying it would be suicidal for us to have to go through a three- or four-year rebuild in just the third year of our network. Because right now, the team is set up with the entire pitching staff coming into free agency following the 2020 season, and a decent chunk of the core positional players after 2021. So the front office has to be looking at a situation where do we want to put all of our eggs in the Bryce Harper basket or do we want to say that we will leave ourselves more flexibility so that we have the ability to re-sign the guys already on our team and supplement them with lower cost alternatives that will keep us competitive year after year after year. And there's something to be said that maybe that is a reasonable strategy. As fans, we want instant World Series seasons. Uh, But the price, perhaps, in this season is that we're seeing is that if we want to have sustained, consistent excellence, we may have to occasionally sacrifice
0: the very, very best product for a particular season. Yeah, so it kind of... In an ironic way, signing you, Darvish, last year was kind of a similar thing. That you're going for that one year, but it could imperil future free agent moves after, like, if the Darvish move didn't work out, which it didn't, at least for that year.
1: Well, yes and no. I mean, remember, Darvish was a long-term signing uh, for a pitching staff that they knew was going to have turnover in the future, and they have been able to develop homegrown starters. So, from their point of view, Darvish is more of a long-term replacement for John Lester. Uh, you know, John Lester because of his age is going to slowly start uh, having slightly—you know—he's going to have lower velocity, He's going to have perhaps. Uh, lesser results on the field they were hoping you Darvish was going to pick that up become the new uh, John Lester for them yeah it didn't work out last season but we have to remember John Lester in his first season wasn't that great either if you Darvish comes back pitches well this season all is forgiven and we're going to have a very good pitcher on a five year not entirely unreasonable deal
0: yeah so it, it is sometimes like you said we fans get very impatient I know I do And I'm, I think, more patient than a lot of fans. But, yeah, it is easy to kind of lose, like, you know, lose perspective and go, we need these guys now. There's Harper sitting out there. There's Machado. And the contracts look like they're not going to be what they were supposed, supposed to be. And, yeah, there's that urge to get those guys. But it is good to think about the other aspects of it. Yeah, you actually raise a really
1: good point there. One of the things I think that is driving Cubs fans nuts, it's certainly driving me nuts, is knowing that we splurged big time in 2016 at what is now, very clearly in hindsight, the high watermark of free agent pricing. And it is freezing us out of some incredible values to be had this offseason. Think about the fact that right now, Manny Machado and Bryce Harper, the numbers being talked about are in Jason Hayward range. And I think we both know, even back in 2016,
0: everybody knew Jason Hayward was not the player that these two guys are. So, you know, speaking of that, there's, you know, a lot of talk around baseball. There's the labor, about a labor stoppage in a couple years, but this stuff about collusion and keeping the salaries down, do you put a lot of stock into that, or do you think this is just a random occurrence that the prices are just going down for all these free agents? So it's actually in the
1: middle between those. Uh, this is not 1987 blatant collusion. There is no there is no agreement between owners we are not going to bid on free agents. Uh that, I think, is pretty clear. There's too many free agent contracts going on, and there's too much money being spent. What is happening is two things. Number one is more and more teams are reevaluating how they are running their businesses and how they are fielding their teams. And they are looking at... not We're used to thinking in terms of P- evaluating player free agent contracts in terms of wins above replacement uh, produced over the course of the contract, and the number that get, gets thrown out a lot is that every win above replacement is valued at between eight and ten billion dollars on the open market. But there's another study that I was just reading about uh, that points to a free agent. Win above replacement is only worth about one and a half to two million dollars in extra revenue to a team. And that teams are starting to think about the divide between those two numbers, and most teams are just reevaluating what they think they want to pay for free agents. And a new group think is developing among all of these GMs who, you have to remember, largely trained under each other. There's a whole coaching tree. You talk about coaching trees in a lot of sports. There's sort of a GM tree. Um, you know, Billy Bean had a bunch of people who were trained under the guys in Cleveland, and then you had Theo Epstein, and Theo Epstein's disciples spread out. and then So there's a lot of this group thing going on. So that's one aspect of it. And then the other aspect which we just read a lot about um, today with Manny Machado's agent is more and more information is leaking out through the media. It's unclear from which side, but it's allowing both sides to have a very clear picture of the bidding numbers. Now it's not technically collusion, but it is opening up the process in such a way that allows the team to not bid against themselves. And so it may not be collusion, but it's not fair and open bidding under the terms of the collective bargaining agreement by any stretch of the imagination either.
0: Yeah, that that makes sense. And, uh, so it's like it's like collusion, but not really collusion. But we'll let everyone know so we don't get bit up against each other's sort of thing. Exactly. When
1: you see a report saying Manny Machado's been offered seven years, $175 million by the White Sox, well, the Phillies now know the ballpark they need to offer to still get him but not have to bid $300 million. Uh, I think there's a, a story that somehow uh, Scott Boris managed to convince the Texas Rangers way back in the I want to say that was the '90s when A Rod was coming up that first time that there was another bidder and get them to up their offer by like 80 million dollars when there was nobody else bidding. That what that's what isn't happening anymore.
0: Yeah, and another there's too much. Yeah, and another uh, aspect of it that I wanted to add to is this whole. Dynamic about paying older players Like when this system was set up The current collective bargaining agreement With the like you know the ARB years And you know take six years to become a free agent Older players were getting paid a lot And it just seems to me maybe it's that GM tree you were talking about But the idea of paying older players People are stopping doing that now Oh
1: absolutely 100% You look at every free agent contract over $100 million That people regret with the exception of Jason Hayward, pretty much, you're always talking about these older guys. You're talking about the Albert Pujols deal in uh, Los Angeles. You're talking about Miguel Cabrera's new extension in Detroit. Guys overpaying for players on the wrong end of 30 has bitten a lot of teams in the butt. And uh, one of the things I think that is going to be discussed during the next labor uh, collective bargaining agreement, and I guess it'll happen, in, I guess, in 2021, well, I guess, with negotiations, is going, I assume they're going to have to talk about pushing down the total number of years before free agency by a year. They're, that's going to have
0: to be on the agenda from the player's point of view. Yeah, and you think the the speculation now is that there will be some kind of strike or lockout or something, but it, well, it's going to be a very contentious oh, yeah.
1: I, I'm, assuming I'm assuming we're going to be talking about the great strike of 2022 in, a, in another decade
0: yeah well um, I will so you don't think you think the Cubs are going to make any more additions this offseason or you think they're going to roll with the team as is. If you're talking about major additions, no. They're absolutely going to go bargaining
1: and shopping for their bullpen. Uh, the Cubs, for many, many years, have been the market setters. Um, for a lot of years, the Cubs had money to spend, and what they would do is each offseason, they would choose the guy they wanted, and they would set the market price. They did that with Tyler Chatwood offseason. They did it with um I'm trying to remember who they did it with in 2016. It'll come to me in a minute. Uh, but that's been their MO for a couple of years now. Um, this offseason, I think their thinking is relief pitchers are reasonably fungible, and if we just wait around, we can get some cheap one-year deals that, from guys that are not really that much worse than the guys who are going to get paid two, three, four times as much. And I think they're going to buy in volume. I actually think they're going to get two, three guys in one-year deals with the understanding that one of them might get released in spring training. But at $800,000, a million a million five or something for a one-year deal, they may be comfortable with that.
0: Yeah, so that would be, you know, one of those guys, if you throw money at a couple guys for small deals, if one of them works out, say, like a Brian Dunsing a couple years ago, then that's a big bonus to help the bullpen. Yeah, basically, if you buy three for the price of one and one works out, you're just as good as you you bought one. Yeah. Well, now I I guess I'll move on to why um, uh, you suggested this to me. That's why I brought you on the podcast. Uh, I'm sure most people who listen to this, maybe not all, are aware that uh, Ken Burns did a documentary for PBS about baseball. It was... um, Came out in 1994, covered from basically the start of baseball in 1994. Uh, recent, uh, about what was it, four or five years ago, he did a 10th inning, which is like covering everything from 1994 to about mm, 2012, around then. And, uh, I think it was 2009. No, yeah, two th- thank you, 2009. So um, he famously said in a few interviews that if the Cubs ever won the World Series, he would do an 11th inning to um you know cover the cubs and and maybe whatever else was going on so uh Moisha, you asked me like what would you think would be good topics for that 11th inning about the cubs how would you put together uh that episode of Ken Burns baseball so i uh, now that you're on here i'll ask you what would how would you structure that
1: okay um Well, a couple of things. First off, it occurs to me I never actually thanked you for having me on the podcast. So, thank you very much for having me on this evening. Of course. Um, But, uh, so yeah, uh, the Ken Burns documentary Baseball, which, by the way, if you have not seen it, I cannot recommend highly enough, um, has covered a lot of themes pretty consistently through each of the various decades of baseball. And so, when I was thinking about what I would want to see in the documentary, I tried to think about those same themes. Um, And you mentioned that uh, Ken Burns said that he would do another episode if the Cubs won. And according to Wikipedia, at least right now, that actually is in pre-production. They're claiming that there will be an 11th inning coming out in 2020 that will cover the decade we're currently in. Uh, So apparently it may have moved beyond hypothetical to actual. Um, And with that being said, one of the ideas I would want to see – that was on my list of things I thought should be in the program is actually now, according to Wikipedia, going to be the opening story. And that is uh, Armando Galarraga's almost perfect game in,
0: uh, I think it was June of 2010. Yes, with the famous Uh, um, out-safe call at first base that was blown. But was it Jim Joyce? Who the umpire?
1: I believe the umpire was Jim Joyce, yeah, who, to his credit, was really, really, good about admitting he had screwed up the call immediately after the game, the moment he saw the replay. But yeah, uh, Armando Galarraga took that perfect game into the ninth inning. He got the first two outs. And that game is, is a really good opening topic for a number of reasons. Number one is a perfect game is an incredibly rare event, so anything about one is going to be a pretty cool story the ending was sort of perfect in the sense of not only was did the perfect game get ruined by a mistake on the 27th out but the guy who was holding the ball when the call was made wrong was the pitcher himself because he was covering the bag. Um, So it's a really good story right off the bat but I think it's all a really good story for the program because it leads into That game, maybe more than any other game, was the impetus for the expansion of instant replay in baseball, which has been a huge part of the shift in the modern game in this decade. Uh, Instant replay, I think, was introduced originally in 2008 for home run balls, but it got expanded significantly in the early part of this decade or plays at first base, pretty uh, plays at second base. Pretty much everything except balls and strikes. And that game is a huge part of that expansion. And free agency is now a huge change in the game this this decade. Yeah. So I would say that the first thing I would want in the the eleventh inning would be the Armando Galarraga almost perfect game.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. That's um, a pretty good. Um, pretty good thing to kick it up, and they they always do like to kick it up with an interesting story. So yeah, I like that. Yeah. Um, so I've got a bunch of other things, which I,
1: I, I'm I not going to sort of talk about in any particular order because I haven't really thought about the full structure of how they would fit together. Um, one of them is we know for a fact that the Cubs are going to be talked about. The World Series in 2016 is going to be talked about. Game 7 is going to be talked about. Um, the rain delay, the speech, the... Um, the hallmark movie that was Cal Schwarber's triumphant return to the World Series and then him getting the first hit in that extra inning. Um, That's all great television right off the bat. I assume that they're also going to cover the entire rebuild, the ownership change maybe, Theo Epstein coming on, and probably a decent amount of the entire futility of the franchise, although they have dealt with that in the past. I think the 10th inning dealt with the Bartman game
0: and the Cubs futility. Yeah, but of course um, with Ken Burns um, with baseball every inning which is usually about a decade uh, they tend to focus on a big game like a set piece game. Uh, I remember like the 75 Red Sox uh, Reds World Series was one. Um, I think the uh, Shot Heard Around the World was one. So it does feel like the Cubs like Game 7 will be the one they focus on in this you'd think.
1: Yeah. No, they're, they're, so they're we going to talk about the Cubs. But another thing that I hope they talk about as it relates to that team is the Cubs as the triumph of the analytics movement because one of the huge sea changes in baseball, and we just talked about it a little in terms of GMs and budgets, has been the rise of analytics and, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, money ball taking over the game surprisingly the 11th inning although it talked a little bit about it did not really go into a lot of depth on the topic but I would suspect the 11th inning will have to Uh, you cannot talk about baseball today without talking about the way that all of the conventional wisdom from 30 years ago is gone and that you have front offices that are far more analytical that are using more and more new data to build their teams and Theo Epstein First did it with the Red Sox, and then did it again with the Cubs. And, you know, you talk about how this episode would be structured. I can just picture um, uh, Ken Burns, who loves to do voiceovers of famous quotes. I can just picture him doing the opening line of an article by a guy named Rennie Giserly. I'm not sure if you're, if you're familiar with his work. Um He's one of the founders of Baseball Perspectives, and he's also one of the writers that inspired me to start uh, blogging about the Cubs. And he wrote a piece shortly after game seven, basically saying that the great analytics war ended November 3rd, 2016. The terms were under conditional surrender. The losing generals were not able to surrender in person, most having won since departed for the unemployment line. Yes. And I could just see that quote being read probably by some famous journalist you know that you know one of the guys Ken loves to have on the show Um, but the the 2016 Cubs
0: as the ultimate vindication of the analytics movement um, is probably also a theme I would like to see him cover yep and I I am familiar with uh, uh, Ronnie and I've read some of his stuff so yeah that's good and um, like you were saying the 10th inning mostly you know because when the original series left off was 94 so the tenth inning was really a lot about. They had to deal with, of course, the labor dispute, the strike, and then a lot of it was steroids, which oh yeah, makes the labor sense. dispute, the steroid era. He had a lot to cover. I'm not, yeah. I, I'm not like complain that he didn't cover it. And in fairness.
1: He is a bit of an old-school uh, baseball fan, and a lot of the people he's had on the show were more old-school journalists to think back to an earlier age of baseball. So I can understand that he didn't cover the, the analytics movement, but it's definitely time.
0: Yeah, I feel like once that, this has been, he settled the steroids up, and it's become much less of a, it's still an issue now, but much less of an issue. So, yeah, I agree with you. It'll probably be, analytics will take a bigger role now, and this upcoming version. Yeah. So, uh,
1: so if, if the Cubs lead into the analytics discussion, I would actually say that the analytics discussion would probably lead into um, Mike Trout, because he loves to highlight a player who is the best player of an era, and I think we can both agree Mike Trout is the guy for the current decade. Yes. But what makes Mike Trout really a poster boy is I think thirty years ago people went to realize just how much better he was than everybody else until the statistic wins above replacement gained widespread credence because suddenly the magnitude of his accomplishment was apparent in a single number.
0: Yes, and of course in a way, yes, but, yeah. you if know, you look at just the earlier. what were the classic stats: home runs, RBIs, batting average, which do are good for him don't emphasize just how good it's yeah it's one of those things exactly that, and of course if you go back through the years and look at uh, and when the replacement is a fascinating statistic uh, and it's really
1: allowed us to reevaluate both game, baseball's history as well as its present Uh, You've seen war being applied retroactively to all the great players of the past. And some of these guys, it reinforces what we knew, how good they already were. And some of them were sort of realizing, wait a minute, they might not have been as good as we thought. They were just really good at one thing. And the the guy who actually comes to mind, to to be honest, is, um, what's his name? Uh... He was traded from the Cubs to the Cardinals. Lou Brock. Lou Brock, yeah. Uh, Lou Brock, who's an Hall of Famer, who is considered one of the great players of his era, and it turns out is one of the lower players in the Hall of Fame by wins-above replacement, Um, largely because he was really a one-dimensional player based on stolen bases, but did do as many other things, whereas Mike Trout is that complete player that does everything
0: well. And ironically, another player that was... um, I would love to see a a
1: discussion of wins above replacement and how it's changed the game and how it's been accepted in the game.
0: Yeah, and I was going to say, too, another player now that really has demonstrated wins above replacement, like, that you wouldn't people might not understand how good he is, uh, is Adrian Beltre. Because his war is very high. It's top 50 all time, which I think would shock a lot of people. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He's a guy that I'm not sure would be uh,
1: a surefire Hall of Famer 20 years ago, uh, who is now. Largely, as you say, because people are looking at his career war numbers and going, wait a minute. He's got like, what is it, 99 career war, 98, something like that? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. And for for those who don't have a frame of reference, 100 wins above replacement is inner circle Hall of Famer. There's only maybe, what, maybe 30 of those guys Mm -hmm. in baseball? Yeah, it something was something
0: like that. Oh. They, a, they have a big list on um, baseball reference. And
1: uh, the last the only I checked, other was, guy I think in the modern era with those kind of numbers is Albert Pujols.
0: Yeah, last I checked, um, Beltran was like 49, all time on baseball reference for war. So,
1: yeah, I'm with you 100% there. So I've been talking a little, uh, for a while now about uh, what I'd like to see in this 11th inning uh, before I go on, and i got plenty of other stuff on my list. I'm curious what you'd
0: like to see. Uh, well, you know, I like a lot of the stuff you're saying. I do like – I think it will be heavily um, Cub-centric. I, you know, they kind of went in a little bit with um, Ichiro, you know, and uh, Japanese baseball. And I'm wondering in the, in the 10th inning they did. And I'd be curious to see maybe um, – A segment on the Korean baseball Korean baseball organization I think that might be neat to see because that's become such a big thing in the last few years that I'd like to see a little bit on that Yeah, that
1: would be a cool little little sidebar.
0: I agree with you there One I had not thought about I'm trying to think, let me think of a couple other because there's so much, even like the past uh, 10 years that I'd be I'd almost want to see something about I don't know if they like, they sometimes do controversies but I'd like to see maybe about the um, public financing of stadiums, too. I'm curious what if they would have a take on that with all these taxpayer-funded stadiums of late. They definitely could. Um,
1: that's almost borderline from the last inning versus this inning. I, I want to say a lot of the really big boondoggle stadium-wise were actually, like, pre-2010. Um, but there definitely have been a few since then. So, yeah, absolutely, that would be... Uh, a good topic. I've written about that. I if you want to get my blood boiling, there's no easier way to start than either public stadium financing or another topic
0: I would love to see them cover, which is minor league pay. Yes, uh, the minor league I pay mean, really really feels like an issue they should cover. Oh, absolutely. I, I mean. Ken has always been about the labor
1: disputes. He's covered you know the history of race in the history of labor disputes, you know from the beginning, and uh, I think he's absolutely going to talk about minor league pay and in particular the 2018 law. I think it'd the rather amusingly named Save America's Pastime bill that Congress passed uh, at the urging of major league ownership that basically legalized their right to pay minor league players below minimum wage. It exempted minor league baseball players from a bunch of minimum wage laws. Uh, and it was done because there were a series of class action lawsuits that were percolating through the courts saying that baseball was violating a whole bunch of state and federal law about pay um, because of how little they were paying these guys. So definitely a topic that Ken will would love to sink his teeth
0: into. Right, now, do you have any other for your list of things that you want to for this uh, documentary? Oh, uh, you, sorry,
1: uh, you want me just to sort of list a few of the other things yeah, as, yeah. as well? Um, uh, let's see. Um, a short item that I assume he'll probably cover uh, is Miguel Cabrera's 2012 Triple Crown. Largely because he spent so much time on Carly Stremsky's Triple Crown being the last one, I will assume he'll cover the time, it, you know, the first one since then. Um, so that's probably a, a topic that'll get mentioned. Um, shifts, the rise of shifts, uh, that's a huge change in baseball, not only is it a huge strategic change, just visually, it's one of the few things in the modern era that you go to a baseball game and you notice instantly, visually, has changed. Um, If you took from 1950 to a baseball game, there's a lot of things, obviously, they think were weird and different, but one of the things they really noticed that was different on the field was the fact, why is the shortstop standing behind the second baseman?
0: Yes. That would be take a minute to explain Uh, to people. So that, yeah. So that's that's one.
1: Um, Let's see. I assume he would cover the uh, even year voodoo of the San Francisco Giants and their uh, mini dynasty.
0: You know, another one I think that he would also cover is um, the rise of Cuban baseball players. You know, with Puig and a lot of the Cespedes and the people coming over and the opening of relations with Cuba. And you know, because that was. Of course, centered around baseball. So that might be an interesting one, too.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, the opening of, uh, of Cuba is, is definitely going to be something he'll talk about. And Yasuo Puig is also just a, such a wonderful character and face to put on that story. Another topic that he may go into um, in a lot of different ways. There's a lot of different ways he could approach this one. Is the Houston Astros World Series in 2017, just the year after the Cubs, Uh, He could go after it from the point of view of the Sports Illustrated cover prediction um, that predicted the 2017 champions, what was it, four years before it happened? Yeah, four or three. Yeah, three or four years, whatever it was. I mean, it was pretty impressive that that Sports Illustrated uh, did that and that they were right. Um, But the other direction he could take is if you want to talk about labor relations and the and the looming strike, is the Houston Astros are also the undisputed face of tanking in baseball. Mm-hmm. This is a team that took tanking to a whole new level. Uh, if memory serves, they had three consecutive number one overall picks in the draft, followed by the number two overall pick. And uh, you can't talk about how they won that World Series without also probably talking about the the rebuild over there if that's the word you want to use and the uh, implications it's had since then on other rebuilding teams
0: right, well I think we've um, covered a lot so I don't want to go too much more into detail on the Ken Burns thing but I'm going to ask um because I'm well, I one One last thing, if I just could for 30 seconds. Okay, I'll give you the Not one last Not really on still baseball, but I would
1: so love to see Ken do a feature on the great announcers of baseball. Because Vince Scully retired during this decade, and he really hasn't given the, the guys in the booth their due. I would love to see Vince Scully, Harry Carey, Bob Uker get their due in the, in the next installment.
0: That would be nice to see. But you've got me very excited for this, especially with the news that it's in... Um, pre-production so that that's good to hear mm-hmm. but I'm going to get out on this question that I ask a lot of people and um, I'm curious the story about how you became a Cubs fan because I always like hearing that story from people so that's how I usually finish oh with. sure uh,
1: mine is a pretty uh, pretty you know normal one um, I grew up in Chicago uh, my mother had grown up in Chicago at a uh, in a house down the block from ours. And my first memories of baseball were 1984. I was seven years old. That was a perfect time to fall in love with that team. And one of my earliest memories is my mother, who had been born in 1945, but after the season in November, and so had never in her lifetime seen the Cubs in a playoff game. She let me all of seven years old stay up late the day the Cubs clinched the division. I can still see the I can still see the umpire raising his hand on strike three against the pirates the day they clinched in nineteen eighty four and that that just did it for me. Uh that was that was a lifetime in pain and hurt until recently, but
0: yeah, that's a that's a very good story, so and of course now, your work is found on Cubs Insider, much like mine is, and um, everyone should read your stuff because it's good. You take a usually look at the more of the financial end, but all your stuff, and of course our debate series, which I think is pretty good. Um, but yeah, so but you. Can yeah, we a little work. biased, but I think it's pretty good as well. Yes. Um, I was thinking if you wanted to say, give yourself a little plug for whatever else you know stuff so you're writing your Twitter and stuff you can well
1: no you've done a pretty good job uh, uh, you know I, I, it's, it's fascinating to me that I've ended up in this little hobby job of writing about the Cubs but I've hugely enjoyed it and I love working at Cubs Insider and I hope people who uh, listen to this come on to the website and give us a chance because we've got some really good stuff yeah and
0: uh, I thank you so much for having me on this was a lot of fun of course thank you for coming on you can follow Moisha on Twitter at Moisha, M O S H E Wolensky, W I L E N S K Y on Twitter. Um, I'm S T H 85. If you have a question to ask or a comment to ask of the podcast, uh, you can email at holycowpod at gmail. Holycowpod at gmail. Uh, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Just search for Holy Cow of Cubs Podcast and you can get it. And, of course, you can always uh, rate and review my podcast. I mean, try to say something nice, but, hey, even criticism, I'll take it. And um, until next episode, thank you for listening.